0: We're today ending in the book of Mark, and we're preaching from Mark chapter 16, and one cannot preach on Mark 16 without acknowledging the controversy, scholarly, that surrounds this chapter. Pretty much all of your Bibles, if you have a Bible with you, you can look at it even now, pretty much all of your Bibles will have the verses 9 through 20 bracketed or or outlined in some way. There even are some translations that just don't have them at all, uh, indicating that these verses are not located in what's known as the, the Codex Sinaiticus and the Codex Vaticanus. These are Greek manuscripts, and these are the Greek manuscripts that are considered the oldest and the most reliable manuscripts. Though newer Marcan manuscripts have these verses, Those oldest and those that the majority of the Bible has been built upon and the reliability of the Bible has been built upon, they do not possess these verses. And so people have uh, decided, many have then extrapolated that these verses were added later on in history and not by the original author of the book and somehow then they may be lowered in standard. I think it's a very dangerous thing when we start to debate uh, what scripture is inspired and which isn't? You know, whether it be translations or, or even in this regard, what what scripture is inspired and which isn't? Historically, these scriptures have, have been embraced by the general public, and they've not sent people away from Jesus. There's a few weird verses there in in in, in the in the Mark talking about drinking poison and being grabbing snakes by tails, uh, all things I plan not to do in my life. But I appreciate that Mark assures me I'll be safe if I do it for the cause of of Christ. But we don't want to begin to to toss out and say, well, this isn't inspired and this isn't inspired. You, You begin to go down a dangerous path when you do those type of things. That said, we are not going to, in this last sermon on the book of Mark, spend time in those verses 9 through 20. I want you to know, though, that it's not because I doubt them. It's simply because of what we want to look at today to close out Mark. Nor are we going to look at verse eight. Verse eight, another verse, that though it is in the oldest manuscripts, and it does appear in the most reliable manuscripts, as some say, it is another verse that some scholars believe should be left out of the gospel of Mark not because this verse is not included in those manuscripts, but because they feel Mark ending with verse eight does not seem to coincide with what the other gospels said happened. And it also does not seem to, and and from a literary perspective, they they, they feel that verse seven is the most tidy and appropriate finish to the book of Mark. And so they've They've kind of moved it out. So you have a, a short ending, you have a medium ending, and you have a long ending to the book of Mark in which people discuss. Well, since seven verses are the only thing about which pretty much all scholars can agree in this last chapter of Mark, and, so, and also because I like the connection it makes to a beautiful truth, we are going to today look at Mark chapter, one, Mark chapter 16, verses 1 through 7. And if you haven't already, if you open your Bibles there with me, Mark Chapter 16, beginning in verse 1. Mark 16, beginning in verse 1. We'll read verses 1 through 3. Now when the Sabbath was past, Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of Jesus, and Salome bought spices that they might come and anoint him. Very early in the morning, on the first day of the week, they came to the tomb when the sun had risen. And they said among themselves, who will roll away the stone from the door of the tomb for us? There are those in history that have tried to deny the resurrection of Jesus, even some biblical scholars. Yes, you don't have to believe. Isn't it amazing? You don't have to believe in Jesus or in supernatural divine power. You don't have to believe in the divine inspiration of the word of God in order to be a biblical scholar. It's a dangerous thing, but there are many actually that, that are that are like that and, and, and that study that. But in the days gone by there were those that said that that, that the two Marys, when they reported Jesus' resurrection, it is because they were somehow delusional or hallucinating. This is not on the scene as much anymore. These texts though show us quite a different picture. They don't show two ladies that, are, that were, were out of their minds. In fact, they're very much in their right minds. They are asking logical questions. They are doing logical things. They ask the question, who will roll away the stone? The stone, by the way, plays quite a significant role here in this narrative of Mark. There's no pun intended by the roll comment, but it plays quite a significant role there. Their question about the stone shows that they were not intending for Jesus to be alive. They didn't go with with some anticipation that Jesus would be alive or some uh, 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 fantasy-like delusion. They had heard the promises about the resurrection, but they saw Jesus die. And for some reason, they just couldn't or they wouldn't believe that it would be any other way. That they would find anything other than a dead body. So they are doing the logical thing for two women or three women going to a grave after the Sabbath. They're going to anoint a dead body. But when they got to the tomb, something is going on. Verse 4 in Mark chapter 16. But when they looked up, they saw that the stone had been rolled away, for it was very large. There is that stone again. And I love the detail that Mark adds here in his gospel. He adds, he said, the stone was rolled away and then he adds that, that, that disclaimer, for it was very large. It was very large. Mark wants to underscore for us as the readers, for, for the audience, he wants to underscore the supernatural component of this event. That stone rolling away was a supernatural thing. It was moved by the power of, of God. And not only does Mark indicate that this stone was moved by supernatural force simply by indicating its size, but Mark does something else, something that we don't see within the English language but which is there within the Greek language. The Greek in the Greek he uses for verse 4, he underscores the divine act. The phrase we translate had been rolled away, the stone had been rolled away is in what is known in the Greek as the divine passive. In other words, Mark is saying without using actual words to those who would understand it, the stone had been rolled away by a heavenly being. This is a divine passive. It means it's a a work of God. So Mark communicates that to his readers. This is a work of God, the divine passive. The stone was rolled away, not by some soldiers, not by some men that showed up and did some devious thing. This was an act of God himself. But even this act does not convince Mary Magdalene that Jesus was alive. The stone was rolled away. It does not jog her memory. It does not jog the women's memory. They don't pause and ask, could a miracle have taken place? Could Jesus have been, have been raised from the dead? They go into the tomb. They then enter into the tomb. Let me ask you the question. Was the reason for the miraculous act of the stone being moved. Was it to allow Jesus out of the grave? Was it so that Jesus could, could get out? Did Jesus suddenly wake up and, and go to the stone and start knocking? Is anybody out there? They locked me in here. Someone open up. Was it one of those things? Was it one of those things where they moved the stone away and they, they went in and they said, Jesus, you know, we're opening the door. You have to... You have to uh, get up now. Some of you kids may, that are younger in here may uh, be able to relate to this in a few years. When I was in high school, what does mom do when you're running late? I see a couple high schoolers in here. Maybe some of your parents do this. Or maybe you're far more responsible than, than I was. But the routine was stick your head in the door. Chad, it's time to get up. All right? The next thing was, Chad, it's time to get up close my door I want to sleep just no I'm not closing your door I'm leaving your door open then I have to hear all the the commotion of my sisters then the next thing was Chaz time to get up doors open and then yank off my covers and then it's really time to get up that was that was kind of our kind of sometimes our routine there in that moment I don't know if hopefully all are much more responsible than than I was but but this is this what the angel's doing? Jesus, you need to wake up. It's almost sunrise, and, and, and we need to have you awake when, when the ladies come here. So let's move this. Was the stone rolled away, was the stone rolled away so that Jesus could get out or that someone could come and wake Jesus up? Or was the stone rolled away so that the ladies could get in? So that not only would they hear that Jesus, but that they, they could see with their own eyes they could see with their own eyes that the tomb was empty. The slab upon which Jesus had laid was empty. The ladies go in, Mark chapter 16, but when they looked up, they saw the stone had been rolled away and it was very large. And entering the tomb, they saw a young man clothed in a long white robe sitting on the right side and they were alarmed. Sitting on the right side. This individual that was there, this young man that was there sitting there was in fact an angel. We know this because the title of him, again in the Greek, is the word angelos, which means messenger or angel from the Lord. This was, this was an angel that was sitting there, and, and they are alarmed. But he assures them, he says to them, but he said to them, verse six, do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him. See the place where they laid him. He invites them to look specifically. He invites them to look specifically at the place where Jesus had been laid. Not only was the tomb open, but the actual shelf on which Jesus would have been laid is now without a body. It is now empty. Why is this? The angel tells them, Jesus, whom you seek. Jesus, whom, whom was crucified and whom you seek. He is risen. He is risen. This statement is emphatic. In the Bible, in my Bible, it has an exclamation point. It's an emphatic statement. It is, it is one of the key points of history. He is written. Can I pause here for just a moment? I want us to note the great event of Christianity. The great event of Christianity. Yes, you need the birth of Jesus to get to the life of Jesus. And yes, you need the life of Jesus to get to the the cross of Jesus. But it is the resurrection of Jesus that affirms and ratifies all the rest, all the rest of it. It is the resurrection that gives all the other aspects value. Think about this in context of what season we are currently in. Think about it in context of what season we are currently in. By far, the event we celebrate most as Christians, with our time, with our money, with our decorations, with, with our music, the event probably that, that, that children look forward to the most, and maybe even parents look forward to the most, is the Christmas season at which we remember the birth of Jesus. Here's what catches my mind, though. You know the Gospel of Mark that we've been going through. The Gospel of Mark has no birth narrative at all. There's no narrative at all in the Gospel of Mark about the birth of Jesus. The Gospel of John really doesn't have a birth narrative, either, unless you say that the word became flesh and dwelt among us, but there's not really a true narrative. That means two out of the four gospels don't even deal with this vent that is probably one of the most celebrated in Christianity. I mean, in fact, we know statistically that the time in which people visit church most, number one, is the Christmas season. Number two is Easter, and number three is Mother's Day. Mother's Day. So if you ever want to invite someone to church, invite them on Mother's Day. They're more likely to say yes, just for the record. Moms, if you have kids that aren't going anywhere, they're more likely to come on a Mother's Day. Try to preach good sermons on Mother's Day. Folks, it's just statistically true that that people suddenly become Christian at the Christmas season. It's funny, though. Because the Christmas season would not matter unless what the angel said was true. He is risen. Two of the gospels have no birth narrative. But all four gospels take time to talk about the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is that important. Is this not what Paul taught us? So in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, if you want to keep your thumb in Mark chapter 16 and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 15. First of all, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse one, it says, moreover, brethren, I declare to you the gospel which I preached to you. Paul says, this is the gospel which I preached to you. And then down to verse three. For I delivered you, first of all, that which I also received, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he rose again the third day according to the scriptures and that he was seen by Cephas and then by the 12. This, this, in, in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, there, verses three and four, there's great similarity uh, verses 3 through 5, there's great similarity to the text we're looking at in Mark today, Mark chapter 1 through 7, and you can look at this later. But then it goes down to 1 to Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 13. Paul says once again, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. And then he says one of the statements that should be most alarming to any of us, whoever would consider doubting the resurrection or would put it aside as not that big a deal. He says, if Christ is not risen, you are still in your sins. You are still in your sins. What Paul is saying, he is saying without the resurrection, the cross could not be payment for your sins. You are still in your sins. Folks, I love Christmas. We all love Christmas. I do. My wife this year put up a tree in November, and while I chastised her slightly and mocked her a little bit in a kind, loving way, I still have to admit that I liked seeing that tree all beautiful and And starting to hear the Christmas music playing, I enjoy it. I love Christmas. But folks, the Christmas story doesn't deliver me from my sins. It doesn't make it so that my sins, it it doesn't ratify what Jesus did on the cross. It is the resurrection that does this. It is the power of the resurrection that affirms This aspect that affirms the forgiveness that we receive in Jesus Christ. You are still in your sins if there is no resurrection. Therefore, the resurrection affirms our forgiveness. And we see this encapsulated in Mark chapter 16. We see an allusion to this truth in Mark chapter 16. Verse 6. Mark sixteen verse six. But he said to them, "Do not be alarmed. You seek Jesus of Nazareth, of Nazareth, who was crucified. He is risen. He is not here. See the place where they laid him." And then he says this to them, "But go tell his disciples and Peter. I always love that phrase that they throw in there, and Peter, that he is going before you into Galilee. There you will see him as he said to you. He is risen. He is risen." What do you do with that information? He says, I want you to go tell someone. I want you to go tell someone. Who do we tell? Tell the ones. Tell the ones that abandon Jesus. Tell the one that that deny Jesus. Tell Peter. He feels lost. He feels hopeless. Tell the disciples they're scared and they're huddling in a room. Tell Peter, tell the disciples that Jesus is risen. But the angel doesn't just tell the ladies to go and tell them that Jesus is risen. He adds a phrase that that I believe confirms this idea of the resurrection affirming and confirming the forgiveness and the reinstatement that we receive through Jesus Christ. But go tell the disciples, and Peter the scripture says, that he is going before you into Galilee and there you will see him and then listen to this as he said to you as he said to you he is going before you into galilee there you will see him as he said to you we might not see it at first glance and it might not be the long and it might be the longest way of saying it in, in history, but the phrase I believe the angel is telling the disciples, the phrase I believe the angel is wanting delivered to the to the disciples and to Peter is that Jesus wants you to know that he has risen, and because he has risen, you are forgiven. How do I? Why do I feel this way? Why do I believe this is what this is saying? Denise read to us from Mark chapter 14, and so turn back to Mark chapter 14. Just a few days earlier, on a Thursday night, Jesus was eating with the disciples, and he shared with the disciples, including Peter, the following, Mark chapter 14 and verse 27. All of you will be made to stumble because of me this night, for it is written, I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. I will strike the shepherd and the sheep will be scattered. Jesus tells them, you are going to deny me. You are going to abandon me. You are going to reject me. But after I have been raised, he says, I will go before you to Galilee. I will go before you into Galilee. Then, of course, we know that Peter said to him, even if if all are made to stumble, yet I will not be. I will not deny you, Jesus. I will not reject you. And he spoke vehemently, and then the Bible tells us in verse 31, and they all spoke likewise. They made these promises, these grandiose promises to Jesus. We'll never reject you, we'll never deny you. But Jesus, in this moment, when he's risen, he's reminding them of that conversation. He's reminding them of that conversation. The angel said to them almost exactly what Jesus said. Remember, Jesus said, you will reject me. But when I am raised up, I will go before you into Galilee. I will go before you into Galilee. And now the angel comes to the the ladies and, and he says to them, go and tell the disciples and tell Peter also, who is the most vehement about not denying me. Tell them that I am risen, but not only that I am risen, remind them of what I said, that I will go before them. To meet them in Galilee. But I also think, I love how Scripture can, we can learn from all aspects of Scripture. But, but I want us to remember something else Jesus said to them that night, in that moment, in that, converse, in that conversation. Turn to Luke chapter 22. Luke chapter 22. And remember what else Jesus said to Peter in Luke chapter 22. Verses 31 and 32. And the Lord said, Simon, Simon, who is Peter, of course, indeed Satan has asked for you that he may sift you as wheat. But Peter, but Simon, I have prayed for you that your faith should not fail and when you have returned to me, strengthen your brethren. Strengthen your brethren. Your brethren. Jesus also promised Peter, and also I believe he promised the other disciples, that when he would return, they would receive that forgiveness and they would be reinstated. They would be reinstated to their position. The angel, in saying he is going before you into Galilee, there you will see him as he said to you, is reminding the disciples, I promised you that I will rise again, and with my resurrection comes the surety of forgiveness and the reinstatement into your role as my disciples. What did Paul say? For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen, and if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Praise God, Jesus has risen And he went ahead of them into Galilee. And praise God, not only did Jesus go ahead of them, but he goes ahead of each one of us. His resurrection not only led the way for their forgiveness, but his resurrection leads the way for our forgiveness as well. I love that Jesus was born as a baby. I love the life that he lived on my behalf that I could not live, the perfect life. I love that he made an atonement for my sins on the cross. But I am most grateful that all of this is assured and sealed and affirmed by the resurrection of Jesus Christ. So while we remember the birth, let us not forget that it led to the resurrection, which assures us that we each one can have a new birth in Jesus Christ. Let us pray. Lord Jesus, I thank you so much for your grace and for your mercy. I thank you for your birth, your life, your death. And I thank you for the resurrection so that we are not the most pitied of all men and women, so that we are not futile in what we preach, so that we are not still stuck in our sins, unforgiven. Jesus, one of the greatest things in the world, if not the greatest thing in the world, is to know that you've been forgiven. What a blessing it is. I pray that each one in this room right now, Lord, even as I pray, that you will give them that assurance in their heart, that assurance of your forgiveness, Lord, and may each one of us accept it fully. May we embrace it. May we receive that forgiveness, Jesus, which you have already given on our behalf, so that we can reap the full rewards, the full benefits of the joy of our salvation. In your name we pray. Amen.